Two weeks ago, we challenged you and we challenged each other as we came to the Thanksgiving holiday and as we came to all the holidays to not waste the holidays, to not waste Thanksgiving, but to use these as opportunities to pass on the faith, to share our faith, even in little ways to begin to point people to Christ. And so I wanted to start this morning by asking, how did it go on Thanksgiving? Any, anyone have a chance to share Christ or, or even just point people to Christ to use the holiday in a way that you wouldn't ordinarily use it to point people to Christ? Anyone have a chance to do that this Thanksgiving, this Christmas so far? Your family? Yeah, well, that's great. And so those are little opportunities to begin to point people to Christ. Good. Anyone else have an opportunity? No, but all of that begins to point people to our faith and our belief in Jesus Christ and asking about church. These are part of not being ashamed, not being ashamed of the gospel and our walk with God and and standing up for Christ. And there are little opportunities, I'm convinced, every day if we're looking for them and if we're praying for them, that we can point people to Christ. Um, you know, we uh, many of you know that we put up a few Christmas lights on our house, and in, in so doing, I'm out a lot of evenings. And we get to, to meet a lot of neighbors. And, and even this week, neighbors are coming by. And this young couple that I didn't know came by with their baby. And my first thought, naturally, is I have lights to get up. Go on your way. And, and then, then God hits me with the same verses we're studying and saying, no, no, why are you doing this? What's the purpose? It's not about the lights. It's about the neighbors that come by. And so we got to sit and chat and Another neighbor came over and helped us with the lights a little bit, and um, a little girl about my kid's age, and so we had her stay for a meal, and that was around Thanksgiving, so that was a great opportunity just to take an opportunity, and I had each of my kids share a little bit of what Jesus means to them for Thanksgiving, because the, this um, neighbor girl was there, and so she got to hear those little opportunities, take advantage of those. We need to train ourselves to take advantage. As we've studied through Second Timothy, we're... we're we're studying through Paul's admonition to Timothy to take advantage of those things, to not be ashamed of the gospel, to pass on the gospel from generation to generation. And so this morning, we're going to, to talk about three different things. So I brought visuals this morning. What do these things have in common? <laughs> I didn't think of that. <laughs> I should have with little boys, but, um, okay, weapons, tools, okay, they all, they are all tools, protection, okay, I didn't expect you to necessarily figure it out, but the, the tools comes the closest, they are all 
tools are all descriptions of you and I. And they are all descriptions of us if we're to pass on our faith, if we're to follow what Paul is saying, what the Holy Spirit through Paul is saying, these are all representative of you and representative of me. All the way from baseball bat to a sword to a hoe. We're going to get to that. But think about that this morning as, as we study through 2 Timothy. And turn to 2 Timothy, if you will. Because these are the three examples Paul uses. I didn't come up with them. The Holy Spirit did. And so it's worth looking into. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting at verse 1. 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting at verse 1. And we're continuing what we started last week. We got through verses 1 and 2 last week. And if you remember, Paul is talking about passing on the faith and that Timothy is entrusted with the gospel. And last week in verses 1 and 2, we saw a little bit more of what entrusted with the gospel means. It doesn't mean you just sit on it and hide it. It means you're responsible to do something with it. Responsible to pass it on. And in verse 1 we read, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And as Paul is, is teaching Timothy how to disciple others, how to minister to others, the first thing he starts with is to look for and rely on Christ's grace in your life. We talked about that last week. That we're to keep growing. That we're to look for Christ's grace until we're in awe of Christ's grace. And then you can rely on Christ's grace to share God, Christ's grace. But it's all about His grace. And unless we've experienced that, unless we've been blown away by that, we don't have it to pass on. And so look for and rely on Christ's grace in your life. It always gives enough strength for the task, even of discipleship, even of ministry. And the second point we looked at last week was in verse 2. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The second point we looked at is we need to determine to entrust and equip others in the faith. To choose to disciple. To choose to pass on our faith. It doesn't happen accidentally. But as a, as a church family, when we choose to pass on our faith to the next generation, we are choosing to affect far more than just that next generation. We talked about taking time to, to entrust to someone else, to teach someone else. And Paul has been establishing this idea of there's a chain of generations. That person A affects person B, and then person B passes that on to C, and, and so on and so forth. We saw a great illustration of that again this week as, as um, some of us attended Mac's funeral, Don's father who passed away, and the flowers are in honor of him. And in, in the stories, as I was listening to some of the stories it was neat to see that chain of generations and the effect that they had of passing on their faith as Mac had trained his sons to walk with God. And Daryl, one of his sons in particular, had been an influence in the pastor that was presiding over, over the memorial service, <coughs> Pastor Dave. And, and Sharon said, I don't know if I can say this, Sharon, but he, he struggled when he was younger. And they thought he wasn't a Christian and going to hell. And... Um, but because of Daryl's influence, because of Mac's influence, Dave accepted Christ. And Dave is now a pastor. And Dave stood there in front of us and shared the salvation message beautifully and is affecting others. And so we see this chain because Mac chose to pass on his faith. That's what we're talking about 
in 2 Timothy. That's what Paul is pounding into Timothy's head. And that's why we keep going over it and over it and over it. And so we come to verse 3, and Paul here gives three examples to follow, or, or three analogies that will help Timothy understand parts of what it means to disciple, part of what it means to pass on the faith. The soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. And so the title of the message today is, Are You an Athletic Farming Soldier? These three things. The athlete. Even those of you that don't think baseball is athletic. The athlete. The soldier. And the farmer. And each of them teach us something about how to pass on our faith and how to disciple. So let's jump to verse 3. Verses 3 and 4 talk about the soldier. And the soldier is about rearranging life around a single-minded devotion. Rearranging life around a single-minded devotion. Verse 3. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. And so Paul begins by reminding Timothy, you're a soldier. You're a soldier. There's a couple of assumptions in that first verse. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. The first assumption is that we are soldiers. If we are in the Lord's service, if we are believers, we are soldiers for the King. And it's so easy to treat Christianity as our ticket to some sort of cushy life. That, okay, I'm set for all eternity, and I'm just going to enjoy all these blessings and, and, and coming to, to church and being with God's family. But that's not all. That's not the, the complete picture. We are soldiers of the King. And our choices should reflect that we're soldiers in battle. Not just soldiers at peacetime, but we are soldiers in battle. This comes back to reminding ourselves that we're entrusted for a purpose. And that purpose isn't ourselves. That purpose is for our commanding officer. So one of the assumptions is that we are soldiers. The other assumption is that we should be good soldiers. That might be redundant, but you can be a bad soldier. And, And here it says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Or one that has desirable qualities of a soldier. One that is suitable to be a soldier. And we can think of qualities that aren't good for being a soldier. If if you just want to to lay around by a pool all day, you're probably not a soldier. Probably a lifeguard or or something else. If if you just want to to sit and do nothing all day, that's not a soldier. And even in the Army, the, the purpose of boot camp and the purpose of advanced training is to train men and women how to be good soldiers. And so Paul here is assuming that we should be good soldiers, have the right stuff, the right qualities for being a soldier. And in these two verses, three and four, he gives us three qualities of a good soldier. The first one we see in verse three, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. First thing a good soldier does is sacrifice. Is sacrifice. Effective discipleship and ministry requires sacrifice. There's no way around it. Paul says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ. And the idea of sharing in suffering is is not just to look at someone and say, oh, I'm sorry or whatever. It actually means to suffer with somebody. 
to be part of their suffering, to share in it. And so the idea, now most of us aren't being persecuted for our faith. As, as three, four weeks ago at our missions conference, we talked about the persecuted church. We may not have someone come in and drag us off to prison because we believe in Jesus Christ. But for us, it means sacrifice. Sharing and suffering with our brothers and sisters around the world that are, are suffering for Christ means for us to sacrifice and be about God's purpose. We're to share in suffering. To come alongside. Think of the generations of people that have gone before us. Of the suffering and the sacrifice that has been made for the Gospel. We're to join in that. I, I love the idea of sharing in suffering as well because it's, it's the idea of a band of brothers. A, a movie that was so popular. And, and why was it so popular? Because a group of men came together and were a band of brothers in the, in the war effort. And they watched each other, other's back and they fought together. When Paul says share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus, he's saying be a band of brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's do this together. Let's disciple the next generation together. Let's share the Gospel together. Let's challenge each other and hold each other accountable. Let's sacrifice together. And I think about that. Are we willing to sacrifice? Are we willing, even lesser, just to be inconvenienced for opportunities to share the Gospel? Are we willing to give some time are we willing to look for opportunities? And that's, man, that's convicting. Because we get our schedules so full and so packed and we have our ideas of what we need to do. But this says share in the suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Be willing to sacrifice. Be willing to be inconvenienced. What would you be willing to give up so someone could hear that Jesus Christ died to save their sins? Tertullian, one of the, the early church fathers in his address to martyr, martyrs said, No soldier comes to the war surrounded by luxuries, nor goes into action from a comfortable bedroom, but from the makeshift and narrow tent where every kind of hardness and severity and unpleasantness is to be found. Our purpose is to battle for the king, not to live in luxury. That's challenging. That's challenging in a nation where we, we are basically affluent. Where we have so much. And it's not a call here to give that up, but to make sure our focus isn't on those things and our focus is on the war effort as a soldier of Christ Jesus. Paul would have known what soldiers went through. He was in prison, guarded by Roman soldiers. And Roman soldiers at the time were the, the reason why the Roman Empire was the world empire of the time. As they were disciplined, as they, they were brutal at times, but they, they knew what they were to do and they did it. And they sacrificed all to do it. And so Paul's drawing on that imagery. First thing a good soldier does is sacrifice. Second thing a good soldier does is focus. Focus. Eradicate distractions from God's work. Your occupation is a soldier. Verse 4 says, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. 
And the, the idea of entangled is to be involved in a task or a role or anything that interferes with other activities. It was sometimes used of a sheep as they were going through thorn bushes and the thorns would grab their wool and stop them from moving forward. That was entwined or entangled, the, the same word that's used here. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. Things that will stop, things that will hinder. And civilian pursuits there is, is literally the things of everyday life or normal life. And, and Paul is saying you can get stopped from ministry, you can get stopped from passing on your faith by just living life if that consumes you, if that entwines you, if that entangles you. Sometimes the word was used for occupation, but for everyday affairs. And it's a reminder that being a soldier is our job, not the everyday affairs. That we are one waging a battle. And that God has enlisted us, we see at the end of verse 4 there, since His aim is to please the one who enlisted Him. And what you have here is a picture of single-minded dedication. If we're not getting entangled in other things, if we're not letting things stop us, we're single-minded, focused on God's purpose, on what we've been entrusted with. So this helps us not to be consumed with ordinary cares of life. One author said they're extraneous. Not that they're unneeded, but they're not the priority, is what he was referring to. Now understand, this doesn't mean that we drop everyday life. This doesn't mean I stop eating. This doesn't mean I quit my job and my family stops eating. This means it's, a, it's, a, it's an instruction of focus and of purpose, not saying completely eliminate those things. It's saying eliminate the distraction of those things, not the items. Does that make sense? I can be consumed with, with providing for my family, right? I could be so consumed that that becomes everything I do and I look for the highest paid job and the best career and every moment is, is devoted to my family and poured into my family. And there's so much good about that. The problem is, is it's missing the focus of being a soldier for the king. And so a change in focus is what's required to say, I provide for my family so that I can lead people to Christ. So that I can share people, share, share the gospel with people. So that I can disciple my kids. So I can disciple other people. As soon as it becomes more important than our ministry and our discipleship for the king, our work for the king, we're now entwined by it and entangled by it. That's challenging. Paul in Philippians 3, 13 and 14 shares this with the church at Philippi in a different way. He says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. A focus, a single-minded focus. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What is our singleness of purpose? See, a singleness of purpose challenges us to distinguish between the good and the best. Satan can tempt us with the okay to keep us from doing the best. If you having a, a, a great family 
keeps you from reaching anyone for Christ and for doing God's work, then Satan will use that to keep you from doing God's work. So many things can come into that. I I think there's so many opportunities each week, aren't there? There's so many opportunities for our kids. And we have to pick and choose what is best. And, And so many times we pick and choose what's best for them, and that's the wrong question. The question is what's best for the kingdom? What's best for the work of God? So Paul says we're to be soldiers. To sacrifice but have a a focus, a single-minded purpose on the work of God. In the Second Second World War, people would often look at each other and and use a phrase, there's a war on, you know. And and John Stott was sharing this and and talking about this, and and they would use it to to justify not doing anything they didn't want to do. Because they were taking this idea of a focus, and so someone would say, hey, hey, can you come help me with such and such? Well, there's a war on, you know. I can't spend time doing that. I need to focus. And they were making fun of what actually is a legitimate point, though, of are we focused on the battle ahead of us? So you, you can't successfully have two things you're focusing on. One will always become more important. Jesus said it when he said you can't serve two masters. And so what is our focus? What is our master? And we know this. We, we know this in the business world. In, in the CEOs have said, if you lose your focus, if you lose your focus on what's important, your company falls apart. In fact, in one sample of CEOs of, of companies that had failed, 70% of them cited lack of focus. Because companies start to do well and then they get into something else. And, 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 and their focus changes and they're not able to focus on what God wants them to do. I drive 395 all my life. I've driven 395 a lot to go up to the Sierras, the Eastern Sierras. And a sign that we've often passed, Don, if you want to put that picture up. This is a sign of a store that we passed every year. I don't know if you can read that. Burgers and fries laundromat. (laughs) Now, I don't know how this happens. I don't know whether someone's sitting there eating a burger and says, you know what? I wish I was doing laundry right now. <laughs> Let's have a burger laundry mat. I, I don't know, or maybe, probably more likely, someone's doing laundry and says, I'm hungry. Let's sell burgers. What's interesting to me is my entire life driving by this building, and I don't have a picture of it because now it's been, been um, taken over by another business. My entire life driving past this building, it was empty. The business failed. And for me, that was just an interesting illustration of what happens when you try to focus on two things. You don't do either well. Family, we're soldiers. That's our focus. And if we focus on too many things, we won't do any of it well. And so that challenges us, how will we be focused on God's work every day? How will we be focused on that at Christmas, during the holidays. And the last half of verse 4 there, the third thing that, that makes for a good soldier is to have a good aim. A good aim. Your focus is to please the commanding officer. So we're to be focused, but how do we know what our focus should be? It's to please the commanding officer. 
No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So our question as we come to any activity is how does this please God? How can I use this for God's work? How does this help the one that I'm enlisted for? It keeps us from being self-centered. It keeps us from running around to please self because so many times we, we seek to please self whether consciously or subconsciously. But this focuses us on what will please God rather than what will please me. And that's inconvenient. And that's frustrating because it's not self-centered. It keeps us when activities come up. And I think within the church body, when, when an opportunity comes up and an activity comes up, we often base whether we go or not on what? Do I want to go to that? Will it please me? And I challenge you, that's again the wrong question to ask. If, I, if I'm basing what I go to on what will please me, I'm at my, my heart, I'm giving into self-centeredness. The question is, how can this be used for God? How can I minister to someone else? And, and that's hard. As we were getting out of the car this morning, I, I had all the kids and I said, kids, are we ready to minister today? And they're like, What? No. I'm like, oh, another day I've failed as a father. <laughs> and so we talked about why we come to church. It's not just to take. It's not just to please myself. It's to minister to others. To be used by God to disciple others. To be used by God to pray with others. To reach out to others. And there are times where activities come and you're like, man, I'm just tired. That doesn't even interest me. And we may miss an opportunity that God wanted to use us to minister to someone else in the assembling of the saints. When we think of discipleship, discipleship is inconvenient. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes rearranging our schedule. But it pleases our commanding officer. It pleases our commanding officer. Are we running from distractions to a single-minded devotion? One author wrote, The further one retreats from the front lines, the more frequent and trivial become the complaints. The further one retreats from the front lines, the more frequent and trivial become the complaints. It's the idea when you're in a bunker being shot at, no one complains about the paint color. They're more interested in whether that concrete will stop the bullets. And if we're on the front lines doing God's work in ministry and sharing the gospel and discipleship and a lot of the other distractions and complaints melt away. So Paul's first call to us is, are we soldiers with a single-minded devotion to the king? The second imagery he uses in verse 5 is that of an athlete thought of hitting a ball into the, the congregation today. It's soft. I wouldn't hurt you. But, um, but if someone wasn't watching, it could hurt them. So, so um, no, we won't do that. That's, that's my better judgment. <laughs> but in verse 5, Paul comes to the athlete imagery and he says, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And we come to another 
point of how to minister well, how to disciple well, how to pass on our faith well, and that's integrity. Integrity. Victory comes when we play by God's rules. And God here challenges us to guard our lives. To not be disqualified. And he uses the imagery of the Greek games and the athlete, one who is competing. And he says an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. There's a lot of discussion of what that means to be crowned, but quite simply, it's probably the laurel wreath that they would put on the head of the victor. They would crown the victor. And Paul is saying there is no victory in ministry unless you play on the, according to the rules. Unless you compete according to the rules. Now when we take on an endeavor, we like to know that it can be successful, right? Very few endeavors do we take on knowing that they will fail. We like to, to, to have at least a chance of success. And God is saying, you want victory? You want success? Compete according to the rules. And so whereas the soldier reminded us to have a single-minded devotion, the athlete speaks of our lives and how we live our lives and says, live with integrity. Compete with integrity. The Greek games, there were several rules that this could have been referring to and probably was referring to all of them. There were rules of qualification. Each, each competitor had to be a citizen of his nation with a good reputation. It's interesting that that was added in as one of the rules of the time. So you had to be a citizen, but then rules of preparation. Every athlete that competed in the Olympiad had to, had to first complete 10 months of required training. And then you had to swear by an oath before Zeus that they had done it. And so you had to, to have a requirement of citizenship, but you had to have training and be disciplined in that and have done what it takes. And then there were rules of the competition of the game. And whatever game it was, you had to follow those rules. And if any of those things weren't met, you were disqualified from the games. And that's the imagery Paul is using here to say, when you come to, to serving Christ, when you come to discipleship, whether you're a teacher, a Sunday school teacher, a community group teacher, a, a, a pastor, or just someone that's, that's in a discipleship group that's, that's leading someone else, who you are matters. How you play the game matters. So many times we can get into this idea that the end justifies the means. Well, the person's closer to God, and yeah, I had to lie a little bit and make up stories and do this, but hey, they're closer to God. And our commanding officer is displeased. We could use stronger words there. Angry. Because the ends do not justify the means. It matters how we live. This is a call to holiness in life, to self-control in life, to no compromises. And God says, the reward is faithfulness. The reward is victory. You know, we, we, we've seen a whole number of cases in the last two weeks in, in the sports world of cheating and not playing by the rules. I don't know if you've caught any of those. Pittsburgh Steelers coach. The other team has a, has a breakaway going for a touchdown. Guy's running down the sidelines. And as he's coming this way, their coach just sort of steps onto the field with his back to him. Runner has to go around, gets tackled, saves a touchdown. He cheated. He didn't play by the rules. Got fined 100000 for it. Same week, NBA. 
We're not just going to pick on football. NBA, Jason Kidd, a, a coach in the NBA, was out of timeouts. His team is down just by, by a basket or so, and, and he needs to get his team together to give them a play. And so he walks out, and I've never seen a coach have a Coke in his hand. He walks out onto the co- court with a Coke in his hand and has one of his players bump him and spill it all over the floor. They have to clean it up. They have to stop the game. He huddles his team and gives them the play. That's cheating. He's being disciplined for that. In baseball, we've got football, basketball, and baseball. We have a whole number of players that were suspended last year because of using performance-enhancing drugs. it's, It's in every sport because we in our culture have said winning is the most important thing. It doesn't matter how you play the game. It matters how you live for Christ. Think about this. Just think about it logically for a minute. How do we do most of our teaching and discipleship? Is it through our words? No, it's through our actions. How do we do most of our teaching as parents? It's how we live. I can tell my kids, don't do this, don't do this. And they will look at me, and if I do it, they'll say, but you do, Dad. And they'll follow what I do, not what I say. And so that's why it's so important. If we're to be effective at discipling, we've got to guard our own lives. We've got to play by the rules. No compromises. I have seen people in ministry that have taken shortcuts over and over in ministry and compromised integrity and and compromised just to get to an end result. And it always comes back to haunt them. Because how we live matters. This week we have a, a, a pastor of a megachurch being accused of plagiarism. And his ministry is reflective of some of the... It'll affect his ministry. We must be on guard. Now, I'm not saying we have to be perfect. I'm not saying if you've sinned, you can't disciple or you can't teach. Because we've all sinned. What matters more is how do we respond to that sin? Do we repent? Do we come and say, this was wrong... I've repented before God and I repent before you. That's what qualifies us to be effective in ministry and effective in discipleship. Integrity. Victory comes when we play by God's rules. Does this rule, does this rule out grace? Does it make Christianity just legalism? No. No. But grace is not an excuse to to abandon the rules. Think of God's Word as a manual for living. And God has said, I created you. I created you to be my servants. This is the best way to do it. And so if you think of it that way, the rule book actually becomes an act of grace. An act of grace to say, this is how you can live the best for me. This is how it works. Follow this. Instead of leaving us in the dark trying to guess what God wants, He says, this is what I want. And that's an act of grace. Yes, we could make it a list of rules. We could make it a legalistic rule book. It's not how God intended it. 
He intended it by His grace to give us instructions for how to live in fullness with Him. But sometimes we get angry. Well, why would God say that? God's trying to control my life. Well, yeah, because that's how it works best. Let's say you were were renting a vacation, or a friend let you use their vacation home. And and they give you a week and say, just enjoy it, have fun. And and they say, there's just a couple things that I want you to do. Could you, you you know, make sure the lights are off when you leave, and make sure it's locked up when you leave. Would any of us ever say, I can't believe they put those rules on me. That is so rude. No, why? Because we're grateful that we have an opportunity to be there. Friend loans us their car and they say, could you, could you um, not get in an accident? Could you make sure it has gas in it? Little things. No, we wouldn't be upset because that's part of the gift. But yet when it comes to God saying, this is how you live, we're like, oh man, can't believe he wants me to live right. No, it's part of the gift. And we balk at it because we, we don't want to live that way. And if we can somehow if we can somehow criticize the creator of those rules or the process in which they are given, then we can have an excuse to break them. By God's grace, He's given us His instructions. It's not legalism. It's a privilege to follow those. So Paul has given us two metaphors. He's given us the soldier to have a single-minded devotion. He's given us the athlete, which talks about integrity, play by the rules. Your life matters if you're to disciple one another, if we're to teach one another. And the last one he gives in in verse 6 is that of the farmer. Farmer, and I don't even know if farmers use these. This is really small. We use it in our garden at home. But I'll just say up front, I am not a farmer. But it's a, it's a, it's a great illustration that Paul uses in verse 6. It is the hardworking farmer who, f- who ought to have the first share of the crops. And in their society, they would have understood farming. It was largely an agricultural society, culture. But when you think of farmer, what do you think of? Hard work. I I think of someone that gets up before the sun, comes in from the fields after the sun has gone down, getting every last shred of light he can to to tend to this field. Someone that has to plow a field, which is hard work, and has to make the, the rows, and then has to plant the seeds, and then the job's not done. They have to water, and they have to weed, and they have to cultivate, and they have to make sure these plants grow. And then finally there's the harvest. And when harvest time comes, everything stops. And that's the single-minded focus. It is hard work to be a farmer. And so the lesson we learn from the farmer is that of hard work. Discipleship and ministry is hard work, but brings great blessings. It's hard work, but brings great blessings. In verse 6, the, the word there that's used for it is the hard-working farmer. Paul wants to make sure that we get that, that it's about the hard work. The word that he uses there is one that is weary to the point of exhaustion from toil and work. It's the picture of someone that comes in from the field and just drops on the floor and can't move another muscle. 
That's the hardworking farmer. As opposed to the lazy farmer who doesn't take care of the weeds and doesn't water and doesn't want to do the hard stuff. Think of a couple verses out of Proverbs, one in particular, Proverbs 24, verse 30. I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. And he's referring to, to a farmer that doesn't do the work, that the wall that protects from animals getting in isn't even kept up, so animals have gotten in. He hasn't weeded, and weeds have, have overgrown. When we, were, when we were in Israel, we walked into a vineyard, and we actually were walking between two vineyards, one that was obviously kept up and farmed, and there were no weeds, and there were wires for the grapes, and everything was just beautiful, and, and just the, the plants were loaded with grapes. And on the other side of us was a field that had a few different plants growing, but it was mostly weeds, and it was obvious that this person had done nothing for their field. Which one gets the better crop? We could see it. We could see it visually. In fact, we read this verse as a challenge. In Proverbs 20, verse 4, the sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. So Paul is using that imagery to challenge us to discipleship, to passing on our faith from one generation to the next. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. And that second half of that verse is just as important as the first. That there is a, a crop. That there is a harvest. And he's to have first share of that. A spiritual reward. And in ministry, whether it be teaching Sunday school, whether it be discipleship in groups of two or three, there is nothing like watching that person or those people you've ministered to walk with God. There is no greater joy. There is no greater blessing. And Paul here is telling Timothy, the work of a believer is hard. Yes, it's inconvenient. It takes sacrifice. It takes a single-minded purpose. It takes devotion. It takes playing by the rules. It's difficult. But it's so, so worth it. So, so worth it. And I'm not just talking about the pastor's job. Every one of us carries the difficult job of ministering to one another. Will we farm? Will we take the time to do what it takes to have a harvest? In 1 Corinthians, Paul's talking about divisions in the church and Apollos and Paul. And he goes, What's, who's Apollos? Who's Paul? One waters, one plants. But God gives the increase and God gives the harvest. You are God's field, God's building. So the farmer is one that we often want to leave out. It's hard to stand up here and say, I'm asking you to work hard. I'm asking you to sacrifice. I'm asking you to rearrange your schedule for the kingdom. To give up some conveniences of life so we can touch a next generation. But that's what God's Word is asking us. And we dare not shy away from that. Verse 7 ends the section. 
think over what I say. And Paul gives a conclusion to this paragraph. And I love this. Think over what I say. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And the idea is like, I, I know I've given you a lot to think about. I know I'm asking you to, to change how you view life. To order it around our job as soldier, as farming athletic soldiers. But think about it, he says. And God will show you that this is what he wants. And I ask us to do the same. To think about it. To think about what keeps us from discipling one another. What keeps us from ministering to each other. What keeps us from investing in each other outside of Sunday morning. And to think of the soldier willing to sacrifice with a single-minded focus on God's work. The athlete who's making sure he's living right and playing by the rules. And the farmer who's willing to do the hard work because it brings the greatest blessings. In the next couple weeks, we have some opportunities. You've heard us announce them. And I encourage you to take advantage of some of those opportunities to be farming athletic soldiers. This Saturday, we have an opportunity Saturday morning to spend an hour of your time touching our neighborhood and touching our community. And, and I, I love the stories that come in. Um, even this week, one of you shared a story with me of a lady you were talking to who said, oh, I can't wait for your gift this year. You guys are, are, have such a great way of showing God's love to the community. Someone that's new to the faith new to, to Christianity because of the actions of Project Touch. Ultimately because of the work of the Holy Spirit. And we just come together and in the foyer here we, we um, put together some packages and women's ministry has, has provided a number of things and have some, some little things for the, the ladies of the house and some candy, so something for the men of the house. And um, We just go and we take it to doors. If no one's there, we leave it on the doorstep. If someone answers, we just say Merry Christmas and hand it to them. And that's it. It's something every one of us can do. But it's something that as I have watched, I remember one year it was raining and about 100 people came out and and 100 people leaving the foyer to go into the neighborhood. I was just crying because of what it meant for our heart for the work of God. It's an incredible opportunity to come together. In your worship folder, I also put an invitation to our Christmas service next week. That's not for you. You know about it. You're coming. You better be. (laughs) That's just a tool that you can use to invite someone else this week. Hey, will you come to our Christmas service next next week? There's going to be some great things. We're going to have bells. We're going to have kids singing. It's always a winner. We're going to have choir, but we're going to worship God. Invite them with that. Uh, We put up a Facebook event. Some of you would rather invite through Facebook. That's great. But somehow, let's let's have a single-minded devotion and and a single-minded aim on God's work. Just a few different opportunities. Finally, in, in, in your worship folder again this week, is a little card that has Reproduce at the top, which is our theme for discipleship. And a few of you filled these out last week. Thank you. We said we'd give another week this week. If you want to be part of a discipleship group that um, it's 
It's not a class. I'm not going to tell you to meet this time. This is the, that's not our goal of discipleship. We want it to be just part of our DNA of people getting together and studying God's Word together. If you want to be part of that, then please fill that out. And there's a basket in the back that you can put that in, and, and we'll be putting together groups. If you just want to create your own group, that's great too. And we'll be focusing on, on um, teaching people how to go through the des- design for discipleship material. It's material that gets into the basics of the faith and then goes deeper with it. Little books like this that have four different lessons in each book. And it might be something that you say, I'll try one. I'll try one. Short amount of time. I'm not committing the next 20 years of my life. But I'll try one with a group. And then we'll go from there. I encourage you to think about that. Because these are ways that we can pass on our faith that we can follow God's word and his instructions. Let's pray together. Lord God, our Father, we have so much to to worship you about at Christmas time, but really all year. Lord, this is an opportunity to focus on how you sent your son as as a baby, full of all the needs that a baby has for the purpose of coming to earth to be in the flesh, and ultimately to to give your life on the cross in our place for our sins. And Lord, that's the greatest news known to mankind. That we can have salvation, that we can have eternal life if we believe in you, if we trust that you have paid the price for our sins. Lord, help us not to be shy about that, to not be ashamed, but to use every tool at our disposal to reach a lost world for you as enlisted men and women in your army. Lord, I pray that this Christmas season there would be new lives that accept you, souls that come to you and experience the fullness of life that can only be found in you. Lord, I pray for our congregation that we would continue thinking about discipleship, that we would move beyond just talking about it to doing it, to making it part of who we are, to say the next generation here will know Christ and they will know how to follow Him and they will know how to serve Him because we have invested in them. Lord, may You use Village to raise up leaders for You, teachers for You, construction workers for You, businessmen and women for You. Lord, may we pass on the faith and create a next link in the chain. In Jesus' name.